Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor John Cosmeyer. Today, we're going to talk about the Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven. They were all looking forward to it. They had left the, um, the land of Egypt and now they were going through the wilderness and they came right up to the borders of the promised land. They're a bit like us. Do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? How soon? You know the promised land? Yes, anytime. The mess that this world is in, God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah if he doesn't come. And so here they were all excited and one day Moses stood up and he said, Now, he said, I want some of you to be volunteers to be spies. Would you like to be spies? Because we're going to have a look at this land that God is going to give to us and then we want you to come back and bring your report. And so here in Numbers chapter 13 we find the list of all those who were spies. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 6. From the tribe of Judah there was... Numbers 13 verse 6. From the tribe of Judah there was... Caleb the son of Jephunneh. And from the tribe, verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, who was there? Hoshea, the son of? He is known to us as Joshua. And so here these two men lined up and they did not know what was going to happen. You know, you and I don't know today what's going to happen tomorrow and beyond, do we? Every day is a new day and these men just said, yep, we'll be spies. If only they had known because here was something that was going to have an amazing effect upon the history of the Jews. And these two men... They were assigned a a certain part of the land of Canaan and in they went. You know, it's a wonder that somebody hasn't made a film about this. I mean, how exciting. I mean, these guys go in there and they have a look around and then when they come back, look at what they brought back with them. Verse 27, Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with so good and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in this land. Come back to verse 23. They came to the valley of Eshcol and there cut down a branch With one cluster of grapes, they carried it between the two of them on a pole, straight from the Hunter Valley in in Newcastle. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. I mean, this place, 
It knew how to grow food. And it's no wonder because it was inhabited by who? The giants. Let me tell you a story about giants. When you go to Samuel, you'll find there that the bed they measured was, um, was six cubits long. Now, how long's a cubit? Eight and inches. You multiply that by six and what do you get? You get about nine feet. I mean, why would you want a nine-foot bed? Because you're that tall. You know, they make six-foot beds for us guys who are six-foot-four and our feet hang over the end. Well, these Amalekites were big enough to have their feet hanging over the end. They would have been true sons of Adam. Adam would look at them and say, yeah, at last, you know. I've got somebody that can look me in the eye. One day, I was up in North Queensland because I was a pastor up at Cairns. And every now and again, we'd sneak up to Coranda and we'd preach a, a sermon to the Aboriginals up there. They were wonderful people. They'd been brought out of um, the place they're going back to now. And uh, here I am in Sabbath school and, and, and there were some children sitting there and there was one kid. He was sitting there, big eyes, you know, shiny eyes looking at me. And I looked at this kid and I thought, you know, there's something strange about him. See, you don't know what a pastor thinks while he's preaching, do you? Sometimes you don't even know what he's saying. But here was this kid looking at me and, and I kept looking at You know, there's something very interesting about you. And, um, and of course, the kid was there. And I've been a missionary in New Guinea. And as Pastor Johannes knows, we love the New Guinea people. And when their children sit there, oh, man. Those, you told a good story this morning. And those children... They were looking at you all the time. And so here was this child. Anyway, went and had lunch. And then in the afternoon, we had what they used to call AYs. Do you have AYs here? In the afternoon, on a Sabbath afternoon? You have or you haven't? We have, but with a different name. Oh, okay. Oh, well, whatever the name is, yes. So long as it's AYs, you know, Adventist youth or something. And everybody turns up. And, And here this child is sitting there. And he's got his hands across the, the seat. And this crazy pastor, put your hand on the seat, would you? And here I am, and I count his fingers. I mean, do you ever count people's fingers? Here he was sitting there, and I counted one, two, three, four, five, and a thumb. Perfect hand. But one finger too many. And what do you think I did then? Have a guess. Karanda, remember? Aboriginals, a hot place, no shoes. So what do you think I did? I counted his toes and sure enough, one, two, three, four, five, six. When the Bible talks about the giants of Anak, They were so big that they had five fingers and a thumb on each hand and five toes and a big toe on each foot. So they were big. And here, Caleb comes back and the other spies come back and they carried with them these huge bunch of grapes 
and the pomegranates and the figs. And they said they were giants. And those men were big men. One of the descendants was Goliath. And he was a big man. Not even the, no one in the army was willing. Saul was a head and shoulders above us. And even Saul wouldn't go out and fight Goliath. And he was a direct descendant of what was happening here. Here's the report. Everything in Cana is big. Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and what? Look, if a pastor one day gets up here, and David Price, I'm sure, will, and give you a report on how big things are and how much needs to be done, blah, 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 blah. Please remember my service today and don't do what the children of Israel did. Don't start crying. Why were they crying? They were crying from fear. Hear all these big blessings coming back and as soon as they started talking about these huge giants and so on, they forgot that there was a God in heaven who had led them out of Egypt with all of these miracles and now all of a sudden they couldn't enter the promised land. They went away and had a sleep. They woke up next day and what were the people going to do to the leaders? They were going to what? Tell me, do you hate your church leaders so badly about what's happened with Gary Kent and it is written Oceania that you would actually even consider stoning them? Of course we don't. But back there they did. If the leaders did something they didn't like, people would think about killing them. That doesn't even enter our head. And here, verse 6 of Numbers 14, but Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. They demonstrated that they had not lost their faith in God, that God was able to lead them. They said, you can enter the promised land. And here they stood between Moses and the people. You know, this was a crisis moment in the history of Israel. What was God going to do? And he came down and he said, all right, you people. You don't think you can go to the promised land? You won't. I'm going to send you back into the wilderness and you are going to be there for how long? For how long? How long? Four years? Fourteen years? Forty years. That is two lifetimes. That's a long time to send people back into the wilderness. Chapter 14, verse 24. Well, let's start with verse 23. 
They certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject me see it, except my servant, except my servant Caleb. Why? Because he has a different spirit in him and he has followed me fully. I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Verse 30, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. Why does God keep on mentioning the son of the son of? Genealogy? Tell me, where did Caleb and Joshua get their faith from? Who taught them? Their parents. What were their parents? They were? That was their name, but what were the parents? They were slaves in Egypt. And what was in Egypt? Idols, 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 more idols. Here amongst all the idolatry were Jephunneh and Nun teaching their boys how to be good Seventh-day Adventists. You parents, never give up on your children. God remembers you when your children do what Caleb and Joshua did. He remembers them. And these boys were reflecting what they had been taught at home. As far as I know, there were no Seventh-day Adventist schools and colleges and Omaras back there. They had learnt it from faithful parents. From faithful parents. And God said to them, you two men will live. All the others over the age of 21 will die. At that time, Caleb was already 40 years of age. And he, at the age of 40, was looking at 40 years back in the wilderness. How old was he going to be before he was going to be brought back to the land of Canaan? How old? He was going to be 80 years of age. Crying out loud, I'm not even that old. And I'm old. You know, when I read this story, so often we just read it and we don't even think about it, but that was Caleb standing there and God was saying to him, you are going to be 80 years of age before I'm going to bring you back here to the edge of the promised land. Did you ever hear Caleb complain? No. What God dished out to him, he took. And so did Joshua. And these two men went back into the wilderness with uh, Moses and the people and one after another they saw them all die and rebel and whinge and complain and go on. When I think about Caleb, what an amazing man he was. What an amazing man. And we don't hear from him again until we come to the book of Joshua. Forty years later. Wow. The book of Joshua. 
chapter 14. Caleb's about to have his 85th birthday. Is there anybody here that's 85 or over? One, two, two people here. I am one, yes. God bless you, sister. 85 and over. Well, let me read you about this man who was 85 years of age. And he's about to have a birthday. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal. And Caleb, who? The son of Jephunneh. 80 years, 40 years later, it's still remembered. The son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, Joshua, you know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. You know, there are some men who are just total friends. 40 years later, Caleb, an 85-year-old man, and comes to him, Joshua, and they talk equal. They're the only two. They're the oldest of all the children of Israel. Probably a couple of million of them. They're the oldest. They are the patriarchs. And here Caleb comes to him and says, Joshua, you remember when we walked this land here, Verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land and I brought back word to him as it was where. You know, the Seventh-day Adventist message is not something that's tacked onto you on the outside. If that's the sort of Seventh-day Adventist you are, I suggest you take that tag off and do what Caleb did. Put it where? In his heart. Here or up here? Yeah. It was in his heart. And it's wonderful to meet Seventh-day Adventists who are Seventh-day Adventists in their heart. In Papua New Guinea, they have a very interesting, interesting turf for it, Johanna Saar. If you are not a true Seventh-day Adventist, you are skin cow-cow. Skin cow-cow. Cow-cow is sweet potato. When you put it in the fire and all the centre burns away, you're left with skin cow-cow. Nothing inside. But here was Caleb, a true believer in Jehovah God, 80 years of age, having his 85th birthday. What an amazing man. Verse 10. Now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. And he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. I'm yet as strong as this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was now, so now is my strength for war. You three 85-year-olds plus, could you be saying this? Hey. What an amazing man for going out and for coming in. Therefore, give me this what? One of the things old people can't do, and that's walk mountains. Caleb at 85 said, give me this mountain. What an amazing faith that man had. Give me this mountain. 
God gave it to me 45 years ago and now here I am to claim. What did he do between the age of 80 and 85? Well, what happened when he was 80? They went into the promised land. And how was it before, how long was it before he claimed his little bit? So what did he do for five years? They were dispossessing. He was helping others getting theirs. Five years at the age of 80, he was helping others get their inheritance. And then at 85, he said, now it's my turn. Eventually, it has to be your turn. This man was not greedy. He said, give me that mountain. Well, you know what happened. Verse 13, Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Verse 15, and the name of Hebron formerly was Kerjeth Abba, was the greatest man among them, Anakim. And then the land had rest from war. He conquered the mountains that belonged to the giant of all the giants. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to meeting this man, Caleb, aren't you? Because when I read that story, I think, what an amazing man. And he always played second fiddle. There are people in this church who always want to be senior elder or senior deacon or senior deaconess or senior something. Man, settle for second best. There will always be a Joshua that will lead you. There may always be a Moses that will lead you. Don't get yourself hang up about being second. I never became the president of this conference. Thank the Lord. For me and for you. You know, you get these ambitious, I want to be the top of the tree people. Man, the Bible tells the story of those who are faithful, second, third, however many workers. And Caleb was one of these amazing men. Well, the story doesn't finish there. Because when you go to the book of Judges, you find there another section of this amazing story. Judges chapter 1, starting verse 12. What time do we finish here? 12 o'clock? Or does David preach until quarter past? You can't miss this bit. It's important. Caleb had a problem. He had a serious problem. Here he was, 85 years of age, and and pardon me, girls, but he had a problem with his daughter. Do you know what the problem was with his daughter? I mean, here he was, 85 years of age, and the daughter didn't have a husband. Was she ugly or something? Could you imagine Caleb having an ugly daughter? No. I mean, he was a great strong man. And here was his daughter and she just stayed at home and stayed. I mean, you you don't get grandkids that way. 
do you? Although today things are a bit different, but back there, no. And, and so here, <laughs> don't tell me the Bible, God doesn't have a sense of humour. He does. Here he records what Caleb did. Verse 12. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath-Sepha and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. What a way to get rid of your daughter. You know? Give her to the best soldier. Well, fortunately, the story is a good one. And it goes on and it says, And Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother. Now, let's work this out. Here's Caleb. He has a younger brother and that brother has a son. What relation would he be to Axa? Cousin. And here this man, cousin, secretly was in love with his cousin. Now, isn't this a romantic story, eh? I mean, he didn't tell anybody. Heaven only knows how old he was. I mean, even if Caleb had had the daughter at 40, the daughter would have been 40 years of age, and here's the cousin, I mean, not married at 40 or 50. What's the matter with a man? And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Axna, as wife. Oh, at last. I love a story that has a good ending. Here this guy goes up, takes this city, comes back. He says, Caleb, she's mine. And Caleb looks at him and he says, oh, what a man. He was a, what do they call him? A wimp. He was a wimp because look at this, look at this story. And it happened when she came to him that she urged her husband to ask her father for a field. You see, Axner had a problem when she married this guy. They had a property, but what did it not have? It didn't have springs of water. Sounds a bit like Australia. You know, you're given a lump of dirt and there's no water around anywhere. So she says, to, she says to her husband, go and see Caleb because he's got a section that adjoins our property and that has water on it. And then what does the Bible say? Verse 14. Now it happened when... She came to him that she urged him to ask her father of field and she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? He was such a wimp that he wasn't game to go to his father-in-law and say, please give us a bit of dirt that's got water on it. Who had to do it? She had to do it. She was a driver in the home. No wonder he never got her in the first place. And then Caleb once again showed the sort of man he was. So she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. You know, there are men 
who truly love their children. And here Caleb not only gave her the upper springs, but he gave her the lower springs as well. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like a double portion of the birthright, doesn't it? See? With all the nonsense that's going on in the world today, with all this pedophilia and stuff, there are men who truly love their wives, who truly love their children. And Caleb was one of these men, totally honourable. And when it came to giving, he gave double what he was asked for. And it sounds very much like a picture of of Jesus, very much so. Caleb was an amazing man. Well, Caleb dies and Joshua dies. And when leaders die, what happens to the people? They, they go astray. I mean, can't our churches maintain their faith without leaders? Well, apparently not. And here the children of Israel, they'd seen all of these miracles and they'd been given this promised land and when the leaders died, off they went. Chapter 2, verse 18. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because, you see, once people leave God, then God leaves the people to the hands of their enemies. And what do the enemies do to God's people? They take back the land and they oppress them and they create nothing but trouble for them And then they start crying out to God. And when they turn to God, God turns back to them. This is the story of the book of Judges. And who became the first of the judges of Israel? Turn over the page to chapter 3 and verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord... The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Who was it? Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother. The Lord, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered an unpronounceable name into his hand and his hand prevailed over that unpronounceable name. So the land had rest for 40 years. How long did Othniel rule Israel for? For 40, isn't that amazing? How that, here Caleb was wandered with the children of Israel for 40 years and then Othniel took over and he ruled Israel for 40 years. Caleb affected the people of God, for as long as what Moses did. Moses did it himself. But Caleb's second half was done by Othniel. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to meeting 
Caleb. His name means dog, hound. But here was the hound of heaven who was guarding the people and guiding them and directing them. A man who was so much like the God whom he served that he not only helped the people during his own lifetime, but his children followed after him and did an amazing work in looking after the children of Israel for another 40 years. What a challenge that is to us. What a challenge. In this time of apostasy worldwide, you know, the leaders of the world don't have answers to the problems in the world, do they? They just struggle from one crisis to another. And here our church is suffering rebellion worldwide. And, and within this conference here and other places, we have this constant struggles going on, battles everywhere. My brother, my sister, if God needed men and women who are like Caleb, now is the time. Now is the time. Study the word. Pray constantly and say, Lord, prepare us for the day when we will not only see Jesus, but we will also see Caleb and Joshua and the mighty men who went before us. questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3 number three. ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
That was broken and spilled out by Fountain View Academy. Before that, you were listening to Oh That Will Be Glory by Marshall Hall. Coming up next, we have Fill My Cup, Lord, with Reggie and Lady Lovesmith. Like the woman at the well I was seeking For things that could not satisfy And then I heard my Savior speaking Draw from my well that never shall run dry Fill my cup, Lord
Enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lynchjourney.com. Following their persecution in the lower valleys, the Waldensians who moved up here into the higher valleys did not do so to live life as hermits. Number one, they fled persecution, but once they got here, they tried to establish as normal a life as possible. And normal for them was training missionaries and training their young people in how to study and how to teach the Bible. This here, the College of the Barbs, stands today as just one example of what would have been numerous schools that would have been spread all over the valleys where they would teach and train their young people to be missionaries throughout Europe. Here in the College of the Barbs is a Bible copy table a place where the students would have painstakingly, by hand, written the Bible out from beginning to end. You see, the Bible was very important to the Waldensians. They had it in their own language. It formed a basis for congregational worship. There was also societies of young people that would meet together and would commit large parts of the Bible to memory. After studying here in the colleges in the valleys, the students would be sent out to many of the great universities around Europe. We know that some of the countries that they went to were England, Scotland, France, Spain, Germany, the Czech Republic, Poland, Lithuania, Bulgaria, and Croatia. And as they went out as students, they would study whether to be a doctor, a nurse, whether it was to be a lawyer. They would study various subjects, but their main purpose of going there was to be an undercover missionary. They would take the Bible with them. 
They would also send some missionaries out who would just go out as workers. They may be traveling craftsmen or traveling artisans and tradesmen. And they would also take the Bible with them. And they would move and travel through different parts of Europe. They couldn't have the Bible, it was illegal. And so they would take their coat and they would unstitch the seam of their coat. And then just inside the two layers of the coat, they would put a few pages of the Bible. And they would travel with just a few pages of the Bible, not a whole copy. And when they found someone that they thought was maybe interested in the gospel, they would take the Bible out of the stitches of their coat and share the truths of God's word with them. You know, maybe you're working today in a doctor's office. Maybe you're working as a nurse in a hospital. Maybe you're a teacher in a school, or maybe you're a lawyer in some law firm. You are not there simply to collect a paycheck to pay the bills. You are there as a missionary. God has put you there for a specific purpose. There may be someone in your workplace that God knows only you can reach. As students as well, the first reason why they went to study was not to get the best degree, but it was to be a missionary in the great universities in Europe. You today may be a missionary in a great institution. You are not there just for academic excellence. You are there also to seek and find people that you can share the gospel with. And the other thing we learned from the Waldensians is how important the Bible was to them. If they would take just a few pages and put it in their coats and then share it with other people, How much more should we commit the Bible to memory? How much more should we commit the Bible to study that we would know God's word and be able to share it wherever we are? They stand today, these Waldensians, as an inspiration to us. And may it inspire us for service, may it inspire us for study wherever we are. Episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Lifestyle Keys for Relieving Depression Abraham was no stranger to depression. His melancholy tendencies combined with an impoverished childhood Failed businesses and unfulfilled love seemed to point only to defeat. At one time he expressed, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Winston came from a privileged home with every material benefit. However, his life was riddled with illness, accidents, poor grades, and lack of love. His indifferent father prophesied that Winston would ultimately degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. In his own words, Winston battled with the demon of depression for many years, and at times it seemed his father's dire prediction would prevail. Happily, depression does not have to be the end of any life story. Abraham, whose full name was Abraham Lincoln, overcame his depression and went on to become one of the most revered presidents in the history of the United States. Winston's battle with depression could have been the last chapter in one sad, obscure life. 
But Winston Churchill rose above circumstances, and as the Prime Minister of England during World War II, mastered his own internal challenges. Against formidable opposition, almost constant ridicule, and great odds, he rallied the British troops to defeat the encroachments of the Third Reich in Europe. His famous motto became, Never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. These noble examples tell us a story, not just about singular people who overcame great odds, but about the awesome power of the human brain to retool and reshape itself according to what it learns and how it is cared for. If you suffer from depression, you're not alone. Clinical depression affects 20 million adults and 3 million teens in the United States. Milder forms are even more widespread, affecting all age groups. Risk factors for depression include family history, medical or mental health conditions, unresolved guilt or anger, lack of purpose, social and environmental factors, and diet and lifestyle, to name a few. Neil Nedley, M.D., author of Depression, The Way Out, states that it is important to find the cause or causes of your depression. Tackle as many changeable causes as possible by addressing nutrition, lifestyle, social factor, habits of thinking, and spiritual need. The importance of seeking qualified medical care for depression cannot be overstated. Adjusting and reducing medications must be supervised by a qualified health professional. John Rady, psychiatrist and author who researches lifestyle and mental health, has concluded, Physical and mental exercise, proper nutrition, and adequate sleep will help anyone gain cognitive clarity and emotional stability. Alcohol, smoking, caffeine, and high-fat and sugary foods increase depression risk and symptoms. Nutrition and exercise encourage growth factors that put the brakes on self-destructive cellular activity, release antioxidants, and provide protein-building blocks for brain cells. Food is medicine, and good-tasting, colorful, and powerful medicine at that. Include healing fresh fruits, vegetables, beans, and whole grains such as brown rice and oatmeal. Give nourishment to your body and your brain with omega-3 fatty acids that are found in walnuts, chia seeds, and ground flaxseed. Keep your brain hydrated with 8 to 10 cups of water a day instead of sugary drinks. Get adequate intake of vitamin B12 and vitamin D. A nutritious diet improves brain chemistry, provides energy and stress-lowering compounds, and provides brain growth factors that increase brain nerve connections. This means a greater capacity for learning, meeting challenges, fighting depression, and solving problems. Rest. Rest restores and helps heal the body as well as the brain. Establish a regular sleep routine. A rested brain makes better choices. Exercise. Exercise is a major factor in relieving and preventing depression. It causes structural changes in the brain that improve brain function, even in cases of serious clinical depression. Exercise relieves anxiety, improves focused attention, creativity, problem-solving, and lowers stress. Just a 10-minute brisk walk can elevate mood for an hour. Daily exercise has been dubbed the most 
potent antidepressant agent known to man. New evidence has shown that exercise actually stimulates the production of new nerve cells in the brain. Attitude, social networks, and a healthy lifestyle weave together for physical and mental health. Establish relationships that support healthy choices. What about our habits of thinking and outlook? To a large extent, we have the ability to choose how we will think about a situation. Focus on gratitude and thankfulness. Check those negative thoughts. Focus on solutions rather than problems. Look at difficulties as opportunities for gaining strength to meet challenges. Two of the most important tasks in overcoming depression are focusing on thinking in a positive way and trusting God and His Word, regardless of feelings. Everyone faces turmoil, trouble, trials, uncertainty, and sorrow. The stories in the Bible show us that in the middle of difficult times, God can provide peace, comfort, and direction. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Psalm 42. Healing takes place with time and perseverance. Today's choices yield tomorrow's gifts. Persevere, press in, press on, press through your situation. There's power for your journey in Christ and even joy in the healing process. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Psalm 40, verse 3. Choosing God, choosing faith, choosing His plan are all decisions based on your personal choice, not feelings. You can trust His promises. Isn't now the best time to discover in God's Word the peace, comfort, and plan that He has for your life? You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.